Do you want to unleash your inner power and heal your past wounds? Do you want to learn the secrets of Celtic wisdom and magic? Do you want to transform your life and align with your true purpose? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you need to listen to Practically Magic, the podcast that shows you how to use ancient healing in a modern way. Join me, Courtney Earle, a self-proclaimed witch, healer, and Celtic priestess, and let me guide you through the dark cauldron of your subconscious and help you emerge with a new vision of yourself. Practically Magic is more than just a podcast. It is a journey of self-discovery and empowerment. Tune in every week and get ready to experience massive healing, balance, and peace for your soul and body. Listen on Ride the Wave Media. Hey, it's just Blaine and Bex here with the best podcast in Utah. That's right. It's Radio Daybreak, a show highlighting the people, businesses, and events that make Daybreak, Salt Lake City, and Utah one of the most majestic places around. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode of the best podcast in Utah, Radio Daybreak. The following presentation is a production of Ride the Wave Media. Hey, heathens, welcome back to Vibing the Apocalypse. I'm your host, the Fresh King Benjamin. First off at the top, I just want to thank everybody who came out to my show last week on the 26th. We sold it out. Oh my God, it was so much fun. We had a packed audience and we just had so much fun. So if you were in the audience and you came out to support, thank you very much. It was a great night. I, I'd been sick all week. And so I'd been like nursing myself, taking care of myself, doing sucking down some tea, violating the word of wisdom. <laughs> And so it was, it was, it was a different experience because I've never performed. I haven't performed any, before where I felt like I wasn't quite at the top of my game because I was coming in. I was still a little bit sick. I was all masked up right until I went on stage. And it was, it was a cool experience though, because it was, it was fun to be able, cause I've headlined now, I don't know, to eight or nine or maybe 10 times. And it was cool to be able to fall back on some muscle memory to fall back on the, the set that I've done so many times and to just trust that it worked, even though I wasn't at the top of my game, even though I was feeling, feeling sick. And there was a moment in the middle of the, in the middle of the set where I was feeling like I was panicking a little bit, like internally, I was feeling like maybe I wasn't doing as good of a job as I had before. And I remembered, I kind of started, I started, started to think, oh, oh shit, I think I might be bombing right now. Maybe I'm bombing. Am I bombing? Oh shit, I'm going to bomb. And at right when my head was doing that, I had this had this memory of something that one of my comedy coaches, a guy named Mark, who worked with me when I first started comedy, something that he told me when I very first got started. And he said that it's important to remember that when you are in front of an audience, that's a new audience, right? There, it's an audience that has never heard those jokes before. And so sometimes as the comic or as the performer, we have this idea in our head of what the joke is supposed to be or what it's supposed to look like. And if it doesn't look like that, or if it's not like that, then we can get in our heads and we can think, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm bombing. This isn't working. I'm, I failed. And, but what's important to remember is that this is a new audience. This audience has never seen this material before. They don't know the way that the jokes are supposed to go. And so you just need to be with them and deliver it the best that you can in the moment with the audience that you're with. And remembering that in the moment, it allowed me to breathe and just give myself some grace and to just say, Hey, it's okay. You're, you're feeling sick right now. It's okay to be a little lower energy. It's okay to be presenting these jokes in, in a slightly different way than you have, but have done in the past. It's okay to be in the energy that you are in right now and to, to be in the energy with this audience that you're in right now. And after the show, I just had everyone come up to me as they were leaving. They were just congratulating me and thanking me and, and telling me that it had been moving and funny the way that I do the show is it's, it's hilarious, but there's also some sad moments in there. Cause I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to give voice to a traumatic background and to a traumatic life that I've lived and that other people have lived who have a background similar to mine. And, and I was able to really come across. And so it was just a reminder as a creative to just remember that the moment that you're, that you're in right now is the most important moment. And the creation that you're creating right now is the only creation. And it can be so easy when we have these ideas of what we should be doing or what it should look like to be judging ourselves against that rather than just being present with the audience that, that was right there. So just again, a big thank you to everyone who came out. 
Uh, it was very fun, very fun to, to sell it out. It sold out right before, like even before the doors opened, I showed up to the, to the club and the owner was like, Hey, you sold this thing out. It's, it's packed. And that was a couple of hours before the, before the show started. So thanks again to everyone who came out. If you missed it, or if you came and you want to just an encore, I will be back at Wise Guys again this month, February 25th. So that's Sunday, February 25th. I imagine that that show will sell out again. So if you weren't able to make this one and you want to come, or if you're just wanting to come again and bring some, some new friends, make sure that you get those tickets at wiseguyscomedy.com. Get them now because that show is going to sell out. So uh, that's, that's that. Let's get to the meat of this show. So today, in, in my last episode, when I was chatting with Emily, I mentioned just briefly this idea of Turtle Island. And I want to dig into that a little bit more in, in this episode because it's, it's, it feels like an important, an important frame to begin to understand the apocalypse as we're dealing with it right now in America. Because Turtle Island, to me, is the setting where the apocalypse for us in our immediate surroundings is unfolding. Because Turtle Island is America. Now, let me give you some background on, on this. Why do I call it Turtle Island? Why is that important to me? Why not just call it America? And for me, this really goes back to me breaking out of a white supremacist background, right? I grew up, as, I've, as I said in my first episode, I grew up deep in Mormon polygamy. And Mormonism at its inception was, was essentially a white supremacist ideology. The Book of Mormon, when it was published, when, it was, when Joseph Smith translated it by looking at a rock in a hat. What he claimed that it was is a narrative account, a historical account of the origins of the Native Americans, right? So in, 18, in the 1820s, 1830s, there was a big fascination in white America with where, where were these natives coming from? Where did these natives come from? Who were the people, who were the ancestors of uh, the humans that were on this continent before uh, white people showed up? And there was a big debate about that, right? A lot of people, a lot of people, it wasn't just Joseph Smith, but a lot of people at the time thought that maybe they had come across, maybe they were some of the lost tribes of Israel. That was like a big, that was a big, a big um, explanation as to why or to where they might've come from. And Joseph Smith decided that he wanted to tr take a stab at explaining where, where these people had come from. And rather than asking them <laughs> or going to their myths or, or, or thinking about like that from their perspective, he did what white supremacists have done since I guess the invention of white supremacy, which is he explained it for them. And so he, in this, in the book of Mormon, he created a story about a, a family of, of Jews, of white Jews called the, they were the family of Lehi in Jerusalem that lived 600 years before, before Jesus in Jerusalem. So this is before Babylon invades and disperses the Jews in, in Israel. There's this family, the Lehi's family, and Lehi is a prophet. And Lehi, this is the very first story in the Book of Mormon. Lehi gets a revelation from God that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And he gets, he gets told, hey, you got to take your family and you've got to go and you've got to take your family out of Jerusalem and go where I'll, I'll tell you to go and I will bring you to a promised land. In the Book of Mormon, it calls it a choice, a land choice above all others where you will be safe and protected. You'll be able to grow into a great nation. And when Lehi brings his family out, some of his family are on board. They're like, yeah, we believe, God, we believe that God is talking to you. We believe that we're supposed to be wandering in this desert. Some of the family's like, no, we just want to go home. <laughs> we, we just want to go home. And there are four brothers in this family. There are sisters too, but the sisters don't matter in the Book of Mormon because it's also misogynistic. There are only three named women in the entire Book of Mormon, which is even less than the Bible. So it's, it's predominantly a, a story about men, which makes sense when you consider Joseph Smith's views on women. So it's, it's, there's four brothers. There's Laman, Lemuel, Nephi, and Sam. And Nephi is the youngest. Laman and Lemuel are the oldest. Sam is in the middle. Sam, incidentally, is my temple name. So I went through the LDS temple. And in the temple, you get a very secret special name that you're not supposed to reveal to anyone because it's what Jesus is going to use to resurrect you. So I tell everyone that because I just want to make sure that I'm resurrected. So not only Jesus can resurrect me, any of you can resurrect me now because my very secret temple name, which is Sam. Also a little bit of a disappointment when I got that name. I much prefer the Apocalypse Prophet, which is the, which is the, the, the new name that I got at Burning Man. Anyway, so there's these four brothers, right? Nephi and Sam, they're faithful, right? They are following Lehi. They are, they are doing what God wants them to do. And Laman and Lemuel are 
wicked. They murmur, they complain, they don't want to do it. They're forced to do it. And, and there's all of these miracles that happen in the Book of Mormon where like angels appear to them and tell them that they're supposed to be doing what Lehi tells them. And Laman and Lemuel consistently forget. They're like, oh, we, this sucks. We don't have any food. <laughs> we just want to go back home. And Laman or Nephi and Sam are all, they're gung-ho. They're like really into it. They're like, we're going to do what, what, what Lehi and, and God command us. In fact, there's this scripture that all Mormons memorize that comes from, from Nephi. And it's Nephi responding to his dad, asking him to go back to Jerusalem to get some brass plates, uh, which have the scriptures on them. And he says, I will go and do the things that the Lord has commanded me. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto this children of men, save he prepare a way for them to accomplish the thing which he has commanded them. See, it's still in there, right? I've, I haven't been Mormon. <laughs> I haven't been active Mormon for almost 10 years. And I still have that. I still have that. It just rolls right off the tongue. So Nephi says this, and he goes back to Jerusalem. He ends up chopping off the head of the person who owns these golden plates as this person is passed out drunk in an alleyway because an angel appears to him and says, hey, it's better for one person to perish, one, right, one wicked man to be killed than for a nation to dwindle and perish in unbelief. So chop off this dude's head and, and steal his golden, steal his, not golden plates, his brass plates. The golden plates come later. Which is pretty horrific, right? The, the very first story in the Book of Mormon is about how the righteous people, they kill sometimes in the name of God, right? And this was something that I was raised on as a child, right? As a little boy, we were taught this story. We were taught that Nephi was the one that we wanted to follow. And that sometimes, sometimes God commands you to do things that don't feel good. That God commands you to do things that don't feel good. And this is an important doctrine, right? This is an important milestone in the kind of the formative beliefs of my youth and in the formative beliefs of a lot of Mormons, because it, it prepares you later on to believe and to do things that are, that, that feel bad, right? Because humans, we are, we are intuitively good. I believe, I think that we know instinctually what's, what's right and what's wrong. And, and we know that based on what feels good and bad in our bodies. And so when you can be taught that what feels bad in your body, like murder is actually good because God told you to do it then you can be twisted into all sorts of, of gross beliefs. And this is one of the beliefs that I got twisted into because later on in the story, there's this introduction of this really gross white supremacist idea, which is that when they get to the promised land, Laman and Lemuel and all of their family, they end up splitting off from Nephi and Sam and they become, Nephi and Sam become the righteous tribe and they're called the Nephites for the rest of the Book of Mormon. Laman and Lemuel, they become the wicked tribe and they get called the Lamanites for the rest of the Book of Mormon. And then the rest of the Book of Mormon is essentially a story about the conflicts between the righteous tribe, the Nephites, and the wicked tribe, the Lamanites. But right when they split up, God steps into the narrative and he's talking to Nephi and he's telling Nephi, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to curse your brother, your brothers and their families and their descendants so that your descendants will be able to tell them apart and so that you'll be able to know that that's, that's who they are, then I'm going to curse them because they're wicked. And this is the nature of that curse. So this is coming from the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi in the Book of Mormon, which is one of the books of the Book of Mormon, chapter 5, verse, this is, starts in verse 20. And so, so this is Nephi talking. It says, Wherefore the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying that inasmuch as they, meaning the Lamanites, will not hearken unto thy words, meaning Nephi's words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. And he caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, that they had become like unto flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. And thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto thy people, save, thou shall, save they shall repent of their iniquities. And cursed shall be the seed of him that mixes with their seed, for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. And the Lord spake it, and it was done. And because of their cursing, which was upon them, they did become an idle people full of mischief and subtlety and did seek the wilderness for the beasts of prey. So that is 
gross, right? Horrifying. That's a disgusting thing to believe that God, the God of the universe, uses skin color as a curse and specifically blackness, dark skin color. That's the curse. But at the time of Joseph Smith, when he's writing this in the 1800s, right, this is an explanation as to why there are these brown people running around. Why are there these Native Americans who are dark-skinned and we're white-skinned? We're obviously better because we're, we're white. White is supreme. That's where white supremacist comes from. And so white is supreme. White's great. Brown is not great. And there was also this attempt to explain why the white race seemed to be rolling over to justify the genocide that was happening, the removal of natives from their lands. This is the same time that Andrew Jackson is confiscating the land of the Cherokee right? There's the Trail of Tears happening. Millions upon millions of natives have been killed through sickness, through war, through genocide. And there's an attempt in white culture in the, in the United States to explain why that's okay. Why is it okay that that's happening? And for a lot of white Americans, sort of the national myth became manifest destiny. And within Mormonism, there was this really concentrated version of that manifest destiny with this idea that America is a chosen land. It's reserved for the righteous. If some, if a people are losing that land, it's because they're wicked. Therefore, the natives must be wicked. And why are they wicked? Well, because they're idle and they're mischief. They have mischief and subtlety and they hunt animals and stuff. They don't live this civilized lifestyle that, that we do, which is actually absurd because the, the native peoples were incredibly civilized. If you study the Iroquois or the Cherokee or any of these, they were really sophisticated civilizations that had cultivated the earth over thousands of years to essentially be a garden of Eden. Like one of the things that I think is funny about Mormonism is that Mormons believe that the garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri. And that's not true, right? That's because number one, there was no garden of Eden. <laughs> and number two, if there was a garden of Eden, it would have been like in, in Babylon or like, like in the Euphrates over, over in that area, not in Jackson County. But it is interesting that if you look at the, the agriculture and the, the way that the natives cultivated the land in, on this continent before white people showed up, there were these massive uh, forests that were, that were carefully cultivated by humans to basically just be food machines, right? There were nuts in the overstory, tons of different varieties. There was fruit. There was roots, ve root vegetables, like this entire forest, this entire ecosystem was designed to essentially be a forest of food that humans, you could literally just walk around and pick food up from anywhere and eat. It was a paradise. And, and white people showed up and we were like, oh my God, look at all this cool lumber. Let's burn it all down and build cities. And so this is the, this is the ideology that I'm born into, right? I'm taught that this is the origin of the native peoples on this continent. I'm taught that the reason why it was okay for the native peoples to be enslaved or to be, to be genocided and kicked out, kicked off their land. And the reason why it was okay for black people from Africa to be enslaved is because both of those populations were suffering under the curse of God. And how do you know that? Well, because of their skin color, right? And I'm taught this as a little polygamous, Mormon polygamous boy growing up in Wyoming, where there are basically no brown people, right? I don't think I met, I don't think I met a, a black person until I was 18 when I was at college. And that was, and there was one dude that I met in like Seattle. I was on a debate trip. So I had no contact. I had no, this was not a part of my world at all. And the entire time growing up, I was taught that because of my skin color, right? Because of the, because I was white, I was better than everyone else, right? I, that would meant that I was chosen by God. And I didn't really realize even that, that that was a white supremacist. I wouldn't have used that language as a Mormon because I didn't have that language, right? It's not like white supremacy is something that you get, you learn outside and then you can retroactively apply it to, to the worldview. But I always felt really gross in my body believing this. I remember going back to this idea that Mormonism teaches you that things that feel bad in your body are actually good. This is one example, right? I was taught, hey, because you're, because you're like, this is doctrine, right? This is the truth. This is the, this is the true thing. And humans were wired to believe in the fictional, fictitious worlds that our elders provide us, right? We're hardwired to exist in mythical and fictional worlds. And we just accept 
these worlds when we're very young and, and just assume that that's true. And what that does to a, young, to a young child, what that did to me is it put me in conflict with myself because my body felt gross believing that. I remember hearing my dad talk about those beliefs with other people and just feeling so ashamed as like a five or six-year-old because I just, I had this sense that it was gross, that it wasn't a right, that how could, how could that be the thing that determines if someone's good or not? Shouldn't it be actions? Shouldn't it be the content of your character, not the color of your skin? I knew that intuitively, but I was programmed to believe that that knowing, that feeling, that was wrong, right? That was me. That was weakness. That was me not measuring up to the truth. And I had to squelch and squish that tenderness down so that I could get in line with what was, uh, what was true. And that's how I operated and believed until I was 19 years old. And when I was 19 years old, I was at college and I happened to see a little poster that was advertising like a, a summer internship, a, like a summer trip to Uganda, teaching teacher development classes to like high school and elementary school teachers. And I'd never, I didn't even know what Uganda was, <laughs> but I, I looked at that sign and I had this little thought pop into my head that was like, you should go to Uganda. And I'd been, I'd been taught to listen to promptings, right? I'd been taught that God and the Holy Ghost speaks to you and they'll like, they'll give you little nudges to push you in the direction that you're supposed to go. And so I assumed I was like, okay, well, this seems like a prompting. I guess I better go to Uganda. And so I started to raise money for it. Um, I ended up going at the, over the resistance and, and the refusal of my parents, right? So my parents find out that I'm going to do this. My dad tells me, hey, you're not supposed to go, go here. You're called to preach to the house of Israel, meaning white people, which is a whole nother, a whole nother can of worms because as of Israel was brown, not white, but Mormons have hijacked Israel to be white people and not, not just Mormonism, like a lot, a lot of evangelicals, a lot of, a lot of white Christian nationalism has hijacked this idea that whiteness is Israel. And, and so Mormonism is just one iteration of that. But he was like, you're not, you're supposed, you're called to, to preach to the house of Israel, to white people. You're not called to preach to the heathen nations. You, I forbid you to go. And, and that was a really pivotal moment in my life because I felt very deeply at the time that I was supposed to go to Uganda, right? I felt that very, and now I would attribute that to, to my higher self, right? To my, to my soul, knowing that I had to get out into a bigger world. And so it was pushing me into, into that, into that space where I could be confronted with the limited and hateful nature of my ideology so that I could change it. At the time, I didn't know that, right? I thought that God was calling me. And so I, I override my dad's objections. And I'm like, dad, I'm going to go anyway. It doesn't matter what you say. God's told me to go. And so I'm going to listen to that. And, and he came back with, well, what if, I, what if I get Brother Lemoyne to tell you not to go? And for context, Brother Lemoyne, he was the, he was the prophet of the AUB, of the Apostolic United Brethren, which was the version of Mormonism, the sect of Mormonism that I belonged to at the time. He was the prophet, right? He spoke to God. And that was tricky because had, had the prophet of God, because one of the things that you're taught in Mormonism is that it's okay for you to get, there's individual revelation and then there's prophetic revelation. So individual revelation, all, all humans have the right to get individual revelation from God for their own lives. And and so, and the, the, you're, you're supposed to listen to that and to follow that. But if that individual revelation ever conflicts with prophetic revelation, then you cancel the individual revelation, you go with the prophetic revelation. This is one of the ways that Mormonism is a cult, right? Is because that's what cults do. There's no other, if you are in an organization or an institution or a group, or if there's a person that's telling you to override your intuitive individual sense of what's right and wrong and what you should do, your, your sort of moral compass for your life, and to override that in favor of someone else doing that for you, that is one of the characteristics of a cult, is that they, you subordinate yourself to another person. And that would have been tricky had, had Lemoyne called me, because at the time I was still pretty much, pretty fully indoctrinated into this cult. And I don't know if I would have gone had, had that not, you know, <laughs> had, had he, had he told me not to. But I don't know if my dad just never called him or if 
He just didn't have the kind of pull with the profit that he thought he did. But I never got a call from Lemoyne. And so I ended up going to Uganda. I spent 92 days in Uganda. And I was one of like five white people in the entire town that I stayed in. We were surrounded by, by all of these, all of these beautiful Ugandans. And it, it changed me. It, it changed me. And it also just gave me permission to be who I always was because I fell in love with, with these people. And I realized that there was nothing, there was no, there was no difference between us, right? We were all human. I was human. They were human. And, and if anything, like I wasn't better than them, if anything, they were better than me because they didn't have this dark, gross secret that they thought they were better than me because of their skin color. I had that. And I felt a lot of, felt a lot of internalized shame around that. And so when I came back from Uganda, that was the beginning of the unraveling of my Mormon indoctrination because I, I couldn't square the lived experience that I'd had in Uganda and the, the real human connections that I'd had with the people that I'd met there with this really hateful worldview that I was told was true. And so that ultimately became the spark that pushed me into my slow exit of Mormonism. From there, I joined the LDS church, the LDS version of Mormonism, which is a slightly, it still, it still has the white supremacist doctrine. It still believes the Book of Mormon has that skin of blackness thing, but they, they've, they've downplayed, they've moved away from restricting um, people of color from being full members of that church. Uh, in 1978, if you've <laughs> seen the Book of Mormon, in 1978, God changed his mind about black people. What that's referring to is that in 1978, the LDS church, before then, the LDS church did not allow black people to be full members of the church. They weren't able to hold the priesthood. They weren't able to go to the temple, which is what you need to do in order to get like to the tippy top of Mormon heaven. They weren't able to do any of that. But in 1978, under the threat of losing their tax exempt status and not being allowed to play for BYU to play in uh, college sports anymore, they had a revelation and they, and they changed, which, um, is, is hilarious that the, the LDS church still claims to be led by a prophet. Because I don't think that you get to claim prophetic guidance and be 15 years late to the civil rights movement, right? Like you don't get to have a racist policy magically change 15 years after the civil rights act gets passed and claim to be a prophet. You should be ahead of that shit. And ultimately, I, I end, end up leaving Mormonism entirely after a couple of years in, in, the, LDS, in the LDS faith. But that, that, experience of being raised and programmed as a white supremacist and then meeting the people that I was told to hate and that I, I was taught were less than me and then having to square that in my soul and unpack the grossness that was inside of me and step into the love and connection and tenderness that had always been underneath that was a really important experience for me. And it also it also framed my view of American politics because I, with, with that experience, right, having grown up in the most extreme example of American white supremacy, it makes me really cognizant of the ways in which America was and still is a white supremacist nation, right? The fact that it, it blows my mind today that there are, like, if you look at America, if you look at the United States of America, through a moral lens, meaning that we, we judge this country based on the moral actions that it has taken over its history. There are two foundational sins that this country committed that it has still not repented of. And that is the genocide and stealing of land from the natives and then the kidnapping and enslavement of African people. Those are two foundational crimes against humanity in, on, the scale of, on the scale of the Holocaust, on the scale of other massive human rights violations throughout history. We did that. The United States of America enslaved entire populations for generations. Did you know, I didn't realize this until I started studying history outside of the cult and really learning American history, but it will, it will, the United States 
or or America, right? The 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 European North American experiment, whether that's colonial America or the United States, but our existence as a white culture on this continent will not have been a non-slaveholding culture as long as it was a slaveholding culture until 2158. Let that sink in for a little bit. We have been a nation of slaves from 1619, when the first slaves arrived on this, on this continent, 1619 until 1865, when slavery is abolished. And that's generous, right? Because really, really, it's not until the 1960s. And really, it's not until the 1980s. And really, it's still a problem today, right? But like, if you want to talk about the abolition of slavery, 1865 to 1619, that's 246 years that we were a slaveholding nation. So 1865, 1865 minus 1619, 246. 1865 plus 246. Oh, 2111. Sorry, that's, that's the date. 2111 is when the, we will have been a non-slaveholding population for as long as we were a slaveholding population. That is grievous. That is the kind of sin that you get Isaiah in the Bible condemning the nation of Israel to destruction, right? The kidnapping, enslavement, breeding, split up of families, oppression of these people for 250 years, and then the continued oppression after that, right? We still have not. America's wealth, America's the wealthiest country on earth. America's wealth was built on the backs of slaves. It was stolen from those people, and we still haven't given it back. We still haven't made it right. One of the things that you learn in Mormonism, right? Because Mormonism is really focused on repentance and being righteous, right? And so when you grow up in Mormonism, you learn a formula for repentance. And so there's, there's a couple of steps. The first step to repent is if you have to, number one, you have to admit that you did something wrong. Then you have to apologize to the person that you did it, did it to. And then you have to repair. You have to make it right. There's three steps. And we have just barely gotten comfortable with the admitting part. I don't think we've really ever fully apologized for that. And we definitely haven't made it right because we're, you mentioned reparations in white America and we're all like, oh my gosh, get over it. Get over 250 years of generational trauma and abuse and exploitation and murder. What the fuck are we talking about? And that's just, that's just one. That's just one of these sins because the other sin is we came to a land that was inhabited. We came to a land, we called it the new world. There's nothing new about it. Humans had been actively living on this continent for thousands of years. They had cultivated nations and civilizations and forests and agriculture. They had entire cultures here. And we came here and we deliberately attacked, murdered, stole from those people. And then we created disgusting lies like the Book of Mormon to justify why it was okay that we did that. So the, the wealth of America, right? America, I'm just going to Google this real quick because I'm not exactly sure what America's wealth is. What is America GDP? America's GDP, how much is that? Total GDP, what's the GDP of the U.S. in 2023? I've been getting increases. I want to know total. It's trillions of dollars because it grew, it increased by 1.6 trillion in 2023, which was 6.3%. How, how is this not just easily Googleable? What is the total GDP of the United States? $23.32 trillion. $22.23 trillion. And that wealth, that wealth was, came from two places. 
It was built from the slavery, the, the, the labor that was exploited from slaves because America was at first a cotton economy. Cotton was the backbone of our economy. That's what built the manufacturing in the North. Even the North, as it moved out of slavery, the manufacturing that was built based on, in the, in the North, was based on the cotton in the South, and it was built on stolen land. There's this great line, oh, there's this fabulous line from an Ava Brothers song that describes America as a, a place built on stolen land by stolen people. A place built on stolen land by stolen people. We stole that. That's where, that's America's wealth is stolen. And we pretend that it's not. We pretend that it's not. And we, anytime anyone mentions reparations, we're like, no, we're, we can't do that. I don't want to take money from me, which I think is dumb because let's be real. Let's be real, you guys. If we did reparations, and we absolutely should, because we know we have records, right? We know who the people are who, were, who are the descendants of slaves, and we know who the people are who are the descendants of the natives that this land was stolen from. So all that we know where all those people are, and we know where all that money is. It's in corporate America, right? It's not in the pockets of like the average white worker, which is, that's, that's one of the ways that the elite kind of keep us, keep us enslaved, right? Is they'll get us fighting each other. Like, oh, we can't give reparations to the, to the descendants of slaves. That money will come out of my pocket. No, it won't, white wage earner. It'll come out of Amazon and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, right? The, the place where the top, the wealth of this country is concentrated in the top 1%. We know where that money is. And that money by rights should go back to the people that it was stolen from. I say this as the prophet of the apocalypse, <laughs> right? We that, that is our foundational sin. And we will not, as a country, we will not fully heal and fully be able to rebuild ourselves into this new world that we're, we have the opportunity to build ourselves into with this apocalypse unless we fix that unless we repair that, because that's where we're broken, right? You, everyone knows this in therapy, in medical science, you, you have to go where the injury happened to heal. And until we go to where the injury happened and look at the results of that injury that are still ongoing today, we will continue to be wounded and broken as a country. And let's be real, you guys. That kind of redistribution of wealth, that kind of investment into the native peoples and into the, into the people of, into, into black people in America would be revolutionary because they already make tons of cool stuff. Like black people invented modern music and they're poor. They did that when we stole everything from them. What the fuck do you think that they could do if they had some of the money that we stole from them? They can make some pretty cool shit. So I think we need to invest in, in that. We need, to, we need to repair that damage. We need to, that is one of the, I think, most urgent moral questions of our age and of this apocalypse, right? The, the most urgent thing for us to do as a country is to go back and to fix that. That is our original sin. That is the thing that is the, the, that's the thing that we're ashamed of that we can't really talk about. That's why do you think there's a thing called white guilt? Why do you think white people are walking around feeling guilty all the time? It's because we know that. It's because we know this and that's the root of so many of our problems today. We got to fix it. All of which brings me back to Turtle Island. Why do I want to call this place Turtle Island? It's because I hate calling America, America. Because America <laughs> is, is something that white people named it, right? We, we didn't, we, this is, this is what happened when, when white people discovered a place where there were already humans living, right? We showed up and rather than saying, Hey, oh my gosh, hi people who live here already. Hey, what do you call this place? Where are we? Right? First, what happened is Columbus shows up and he's like, I'm in India. And the natives are like, no, you're really not. And he's like, seriously, I am. And then he goes to his grave. He dies refusing to believe that it wasn't India. He's like, it was just the West Indies. <laughs> it was the West of India. But then after, after Columbus, uh, another guy comes along. His name's Amerigo Vespucci. And he's an explorer. And he's credited with the one 
being the one that figured out that it was a continent, even though, again, everyone who lived here knew that. So literally all you had to do was ask the people who were already here and they would have told you, yeah, this is a, this is not an island. This is a continent. But America Vespucci discovered that for Europe. He wrote a couple of letters back to Europe about describing some of his adventures. And then a dude in a map maker in Europe basically made one of the first maps of the North and South American continents. And, and he wrote America on them after America Vespucci. So it's literally named after some dude who is not even from here, not named by the people who've been living here for generations, just a guy who showed up and lied about some of the things that he discovered, wrote some letters, and then they just drew, just wrote on a map, this is mine. I can't think of a more white thing to do, right, than taking credit for something that someone has already done. But I don't like, I don't like calling, I don't like calling where we're at America because that sort of buys into this colonialization, buys into this idea that, buys into this idea that this is something that there weren't already people here, that we, that white people and white supremacy and white culture discovered this place. We didn't. We were almost the last people who, who showed up. So what did the natives call it? What did the people who lived here call it? Well, they called it a lot of different things, generally depending on where they lived. But my favorite thing, this was a question that I had a, a couple years ago. I was like, I want to know what they called this place. I, I'm trying to figure out what to call this place because I don't want to call it America again anymore because I don't want to buy into this clo colonial worldview. So turns out that a bunch of the tribes, especially in the Northeast, is most prominently the Iroquois, which was a massive federation of tribes in the Northeastern um, United States, very cool tribe or very cool group of tribes with just a rich and vibrant political structure and culture. They called it Turtle Island. And it goes back to this myth of how it was formed, which basically was that there was a, there was a big flood and the gods were trying to figure out how to help all the animals survive. And there was a turtle who volunteered. It was like, hey, you can, all the animals can climb up on my back. So they all climbed up on his back and they were floating, surviving the flood. But then the waters were so high that the God was like, hey, we got we to gotta build out this a little bit more on the back of this turtle so that um, there's more land so that people can live on here. And so a couple of animals tried to dive down to the bottom of the ocean to get, some, get some, some dirt. Only the muskrat is able to make it back up. He brings a little bit of land. And with that, the God kind of creates, puts mud down on the back of this turtle, and that becomes Turtle Island. What's interesting, though, is that the reason or if you want to, what's interesting about the term, the Turtle Island is that if you look at North America from, from above, it looks like a turtle. Let me show you. So zooming in, here's the head right along the top. Alaska is one of its feet down here by the Hudson Bay. That's another one of its feet. Here's the shell, the tail. Back leg, back leg. An artistic rendering of that that looks a little bit, you can see it a little bit better, is from Reddit. I love this image. It's a fucking turtle. We're on the back of a giant turtle. And what's interesting about that, as it relates to the apocalypse, as it relates to oceans rising, is that it looks like we're on the back of the turtle and the turtle is diving right? You can see that water going up. It's head first. It's going back under the water where ocean levels are going to rise. The turtle that we're on the back of that we're riding is going to go down. I think this is fascinating. I love this as a name for this amazing place that we live because it's not named after a person. It's not named after something from the old world. It's not named after Europe. It's not named after an ideology. It's named after the land. It's named after what it looks like. It's a fucking turtle. We're on the back of a giant turtle and the turtle is diving. And I think that's a, an important and a helpful way to look at America, right? Because it, it gets beyond borders. It gets beyond political events. The United States, Canada, Mexico, we don't know how crazy this apocalypse is going to go. We don't know what the next hundred years are really going to, to bring, but it's there's a very real possibility with the decline of the Amer of the North of the, the United States empire that 
the political institutions. Right now, literally, Texas is talking about seceding. There could be a civil war in the United States. So the political institutions of that currently exist on Turtle Island are very much in flux. They could be different. They're not permanent. And what I like about calling it Turtle Island is that Turtle Island isn't a political ideology. It's not a country. It's not a nationalism. It's a place. And we are responsible as citizens of Turtle Island for all of the life on Turtle Island. All of the people. It doesn't matter what the border is. It doesn't matter what country it is. What matters is, are they people? Are they alive? Are they citizens of this Turtle Island? Are they living on this continent? Then they're our neighbors. Then they're our people. Then they're our tribe. And the tribes of Turtle Island are going to have to come together to survive this apocalypse. And actually, when you think about it, we are beautifully prepared on Turtle Island to survive the apocalypse because in addition to all of the crappy things the United States of America has done, which was a bit of a, that was a bit of a culture shock for me too, right? Stepping out of Mormonism has been this growing out of a cult, right? And I had to come to terms with some of the things that Mormonism had done that were bad, that were harmful. And then I had to come to terms because I stepped out then into America, into the United States of America. And then I had to come to terms with some of the harm that that country had caused. And so I went, I got to a point for a while where I was like, I was bummed about the place where I lived. I was upset. I was like pretty negative about the United States. And then I started meeting people who had immigrated here, right? Who had come here from other countries, from Russia, from Latin America, from China, from just all over. Because the, because the United States, for all of its faults, has also been gathering, it's been calling a high caliber of people for hundreds of years. They've been coming here often with great resistance from some of the white supremacist ideology that exists on Turtle Island, but they've been coming here nevertheless. And as I talked to these people, I remember I was in, I was at a conference in Vegas. There was an after party. I was talking to this dude who, who was, he'd immigrated from Russia. He'd started a business here. And I was, I was sharing with him how I felt about America. And at the time I was feeling negative and he looked me, he kind of like grabbed my shoulder and he looked in my eyes and he said, he said, I love America. I love this place. There's nowhere else that has the kind of opportunities that I've been able to have here. And I thought about that and I, I took that in and I thought about it. And I thought about all of the, all of the incredible diverse people who have been coming to Turtle Island for the last 400 years. We have an incredible diverse community here. One of the terms that I've coined that I'm trying to make a thing, because I think it's a value. Like if I were to be prophet of Turtle Island and to preach the values of Turtle Island, I think one of the most important values is what I call diverse immunity, which is I, when you take the words diversity and community and you squish them together. So a diverse community gives you, a, gives you diverse immunity, which is an immune system, right? It's like it, it, a div diverse immunity means you are immune. You're, you're able to withstand some of the challenges, some of the shocks that are coming with the apocalypse. As ocean levels rise, as natural disasters happen, as governments fall, as wars happen, right? As all of the crazy calamities that I was promised start to unfold, right? As the climate apocalypse hurdles us towards potential oblivion, having diverse immunity in our communities will allow us to respond to that very effectively. Because the more the more diverse your community is, the more, the more different ideas and more different perspectives and different worldviews and different ways of being you have from the different humans that live in your community, the more options you have, the more ideas you have. And if that community has learned to get past some of the tribal, ethnocentric parts of our species where we shun and are afraid of those people who are different from us, the white supremacy right? That says that one group of people is the most important, is the best. If we can move past that worldview and step into a worldview that values difference, that values diversity, that recognizes that having a bunch of different people with a bunch of different ideas is not a liability. It's a fucking asset. What you begin to realize is that Turtle Island is actually the most 
well-prepared place, the most vibrant, exciting, powerful place on earth. Because we have people, we have ideas, we have cultures, we have myths, we have worldviews, we have food from all over the world. It's like the entire, it's like the human race has been experimenting with different ways of being human for tens of thousands of years, for hundreds of thousands of years, all over the world. And then we gathered all of those different ways of being and we brought them to Turtle Island. And now we have access to them. We have those, we have those people as resources. We have those ideas as resources. And if we can recognize that for the beautiful gift that it is, we'll be able to crush this apocalypse, y'all. We will be able to make this apocalypse our bitch because we will have access to the greatest minds, people, ideas, resources that the world could ever create. And it's just because of a shift of mindset. So that's why I think Turtle Island is an important frame. It's an important way to think because we have to get past this sort of ethnocentric, white supremacist idea of one person, one way is the best way and recognize that what we need in these apocalyptic times is a bunch of options, a bunch of ideas, a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different ways to respond to the challenges that our communities are facing. So if that sounds rad to you, then welcome to Turtle Island. I'm the prophet. We're going to have a good time vibing the apocalypse on Turtle Island. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Once again, if you weren't able to catch me last time at Wise Guys, or if you want to catch me again, February 25th at Wise Guys, downtown Salt Lake, we're going to be doing another show. It's going to sell out. So get your tickets at wiseguyscomedy.com as quick as you can. And then if you if you want to come on the podcast, if you think that you have something interesting to share, like a, a skill or a perspective, if you're one of those diverse members of Turtle Island and you think you've got something of value to share with the, the citizens of Turtle Island, reach out to me. I would love to have, I'm, I'm trying to get more people on, on the podcast. I want to interview them and get a sense of what I missed in the apocalypse or, or while I was on the compound. And also like what, what skills, what resources, what ideas you have to share with the rest of this community so that we can, we can vibe this apocalypse together. I think that's it. Thanks guys. Talk to you next week.